This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Well, welcome in, everybody. I am Pastor Randy. I'm Pastor Andy. And the two of us have just come out of our Ash Wednesday service. Now, you're going to hear this podcast after Ash Wednesday, but we'll still be in the season of Lent, and Ash Wednesday is the is the first day. And so we always like to check in and see how our souls are prospering. What is it that leads to the uh, to our souls prospering? And Pastor Andy, you even brought that up and sort of defined that in your last sermon. Yeah, uh, John Wesley's question to the people called Methodist uh, yeah. in the current uh, modern culture of the Methodist Church. This, the question is, how is it with your souls? But We've learned through this podcast that it was more like, how does your soul prosper? Uh, it connects more with John Wesley's idea of going on to perfection, that we're supposed to be growing spiritually. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that this is the time um, that is set apart in the Christian year for us to grow, uh, or at least to pay special attention to it. You know, we have these seasons, but the things that are symbolized in the seasons are all year, all of our life long things, right? This, mm-hmm. is, this is just the season where we emphasize that kind of thing, the, yeah. the spiritual growth through the, through spiritual practices. It's meant to be, it's supposed to be a time in which we set apart uh, some time to be intentional mm-hmm. in cultivating our journey. But it's not altogether the most popular season of the Christian year because, well, it's penitent. And the, and the right. readings, if we use the lectionary, if we use the church calendar, the readings are, are they can be kind of harsh. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. So Lent can be uh, avoided very easily by some of us. I feel like uh, we want to skip Lent, skip Good Friday, and just get right back to Easter. So we, we don't want to go through that. But it's necessary. We have to learn to say no to ourselves. I just had a Cajun lunch down the street, you know, in Ross Center in that new barbecue yeah. restaurant. Well, they, they're not doing barbecue. They're doing Cajun food. Mm. Uh, and so he's, he, and I love it, and I'm not, this is not being critical, but he's, but Mardi Gras is over. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Cajun thing yeah. is, is over. But, and so to your point, um, the culture sort of recognizes certain things and, and not others. And, and the other thing, and we can come back to this in a minute, but also today is Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. And we deal with that all of the time in church in the cultural, uh, the, the culture, the popular culture uh, clashes w- with the church calendar. And then what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. And there was a meme I saw my, my wife showed me on the way out the door. She showed me uh, someone with ashes on their forehead in the shape of a heart for today. Huh. So I don't know if that's the way we deal with it, but it, it's a challenge. You know, it's a challenge on Mother's Day and Father's Day and Memorial Day and Veterans Day, right? Yeah. And um, we commercialize yeah. holidays and mm-hmm. and seasons and, and sometimes what started out as even a Christian holiday, mm-hmm. a Christian holy day is commercialized now and very and we of course know different examples of that, but yeah. yeah. Well we'll come back to Ash Wednesday and Lent, but we're celebrating a milestone because you wrapped up last Sunday your sermon series on the 25 Articles of Religion for the Methodists, and we need to stop and and acknowledge that. And your sermon was a summary. Um, It wasn't the lightning round that I put you through halfway through, but you were summarizing uh, for us those 25 articles. And, And before we get into the 25th article and start taking a look and reflecting on your 
on your sermon. Uh, one more time, Pastor Andy, I'll let you do it this time, and just briefly explain what those articles are and why you decided to embark upon those in the first place. Those are both good questions. <laughs> um, so the 25 articles of religion are the doctrinal standards that John Wesley gave the people called Methodist as um, Methodist, Methodism was being born in the United States in the late 1700s. Uh, they were his re-edition or abridgment of the uh, 39 articles of religion from the Church of England. That's what, that's what John Wesley was a part of, actually. He didn't think of himself as starting a new denomination, but because things in America were what they were in the late 1700s, he kind of saw the writing on the wall, and so... These are our doctrinal standards. So the way I have been using them, though, in the last several months is not as much to say, well, this is what the Protestant Reformers thought about this article. This is what John Wesley thought about this article. Uh, I believe those voices are very important. But the thing I've been trying to do is, like, how do we find something that's timeless within them and say it in such a way that it makes sense for us in our modern context today? I've been using them mainly as like a, a roadmap into our relationship with God, with God today, like guardrails, if you will. And, and I think that's the spirit of what these doctrinal standards were supposed to be uh, for the Methodists when they first got them. And so I feel like it, it honors the spirit of what they're meant to do for us even today. So what are some of the other doctrinal standards? That term itself probably needs to be defined. So there's, there are the general rules. Mm -hmm. There are the Wesley's notes on the, on the New Testament and the sermons of, of John Wesley. And we talked about this in my Sunday school class. Because they're doctrinal standards, they're almost like constitutional you know, items in the articles in the, in the Constitution uh, where they, they can't be changed, or it would be very, very hard for them to be changed. Well, we run into an issue all these years later when we've got these standards that cannot be, ch that cannot be changed. Mm -hmm. But, boy... Um, there was development even all through Scripture, and even even John Wesley himself developed those 39 articles into 25, but now we have these 25. So what you did, it wasn't subversive. It was what you had to do with what you had mm -hmm. to update them. You know, we, you didn't just throw them out and say... No, no. no. I love our tradition. Yeah. I, yeah. I deeply love our tradition, and I... And I want to maintain it. I want to continue our tradition. Um, in many ways, what I've tried to do is very conservative in the sense that like, I'm trying to conserve our, our tradition um, and show how it is relevant for us today that the questions that we are asking today are, are not altogether different than the questions that people asked 200, 300, 400, 500 years ago even. Mm -hmm. And so indefinitely. But that that's the challenge when we constitutionally protect something. And I understand why we do that, right? Like, we want to protect things that are important to us. I, I understand that. But when we lock things into stone, we run into some issues. And certainly we can see a little bit of that in our country today. Like thing, our Constitution, in a sense, is locked into stone, never going to change. And then, then we're left to try to interpret how that works for us today. Um, and, and certainly we've run into a little bit of that, a little bit of that as Methodists. Um, they constitutionally protected John Wesley's ironically, revision of his articles. <laughs> right. So, so uh, I, f I fully believe that John Wesley anticipated that we would continue to evolve. Uh -huh. 
but the Methodists didn't didn't want that to happen for whatever reason. Yeah. So uh, yeah, but you mentioned the general rules. Um, Wesley summarized holy living with three rules to to do no harm and to do all the good we can. And uh, his language is to attend the ordinances of God. Uh, the updated language is stay in love with God. I can see the benefit of both both phrases. And then those general rules also underneath each one of those rules is examples, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you go into our book of discipline, it talks about examples like early Methodist. Uh, it says in our general rules, should not own slaves. But interestingly enough, again, <laughs> when Methodism took off in America, uh, the, south, the south part of our country at that time had slaves. And so they went against that rule, right? even from the beginning. And it led to a denominational split. So, yeah. It's complicated. Religion just complicated because people are. But it's part of the tradition, and uh, we we still go by the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Excuse me, Wesleyan. (laughs) Go ahead. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. (coughs) Yeah. So uh, it's one of the really cool things about the Methodist tradition. Uh, We have Scripture as our starting point when determining uh, God's desires for our lives, but then we use our tradition, our own reason, and experience, and so. We start with scripture, and then there's a tradition of the way that those scriptures have been interpreted and implied. But then there's our also our own reason experience. We we think about how what we're reading, and our history and our scriptures inter- intersects and interacts with our our current worldview and our understanding of things today. Basically, and Pastor Andy's interpretation of that is like what's wonderful about being a Methodist is we don't have to believe our brains at the door. In fact, we encourage people to use them, and that's in the fabric of who we are as United Methodist. Thanks for picking me up on that. I don't know where the cough button is here in the in the podcast studio, <clears throat> but yes, you picked up perfectly. I was going to say we have that quadrilateral, and I was thinking specifically about tradition. <clears throat> so we... We keep the tradition. Yeah. These are the traditions, yeah. Yeah, and they inform the, they the current inform. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I guess for me, a lot. Of, and this is going to go a little bit outside of our Methodist tradition and how the quadrilateral is typically used. I'm going to say that before I get ready to say what I'm getting ready to say. <laughs> um, a lot of times, what I've noticed in my own life, Randy, is like I honestly start with my own experiences, and then Scripture and tradition confirms those experiences I'm already having when it comes to my relationship with God today. And it's just much more of a living type of experience for me in the way that I actually do the work. There was a time where I was kind of locked in. This is the only interpretation. This is the only way in terms of the way the scriptures have been understood, the tradition has been understood. Um, and, And there is some benefit to that, right? I mean, but just as I think about my own life and how I think about my own relationship with God, it's almost like I start with my own reason experience sometimes, and then it's confirmed in the scriptures and the traditions, and I think, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's a little different, I really think, in practice. Yeah, I'm going to try to paraphrase what really has become kind of a refrain of yours, and you can tell me if if this is a good paraphrase, but I've heard you say that, that we see Christ and we see God um, coming at us in our lives. Sure. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's this notion that our lives work in Christ-like ways, um, and and that's one of the unfortunate things about faith, right? When people hear the word faith today, they think it's like, I don't think this is always the case, but in a lot of places, what faith has come to mean is like, I have to believe in things that seem 
way outside of my experience, way outside of my worldview. I have to adhere to these ideas that are so foreign to everything I've experienced in my day-to-day life. And then if you question any of those ideas, then you're led to believe because of the community you find yourself in that you have some sort of like defective faith. And I'm going to say just straight out, no way. I don't, I'm not, I don't buy that. What I'm saying is like, when we say, I see Christ in you, we're saying that, that God comes to us disguised as our lives, that we have an incarnational worldview, that our lives work best in Christ-like ways. And if we are just honest with ourselves, we just listen to ourselves, then it becomes apparent that Christ is already proving Christ to us in ourselves, in our communities, in the world around us. Now, someone's going to say, well, look around. And I'm going to say, exactly look around. You know, when we don't live a Christ-like way, things crumble individually and as a collective. So um, I would say Christ is the natural way. And, the, and then the sin, if we want to use that term, sin is the unnatural way right. to what we've been designed to do. Good, good. Okay, let's look at Article 25, uh, the last one. And um, I know that you even testify to how you have been changed you know, by your prayer and your study and, and your writing of uh, your sermons about these articles. And I have too, and I, and I know that the congregation here has as well. And those of you who listen to us virtually, I'm, I'm sure, and I trust um, that it's been transformational for you as well. Article 25, I never really even had a chance to sit down and look at this one for at face value, but we might spend a minute doing that before we go on and, and reflect on your sermon. But it's called uh, Of a Christian Man's Oath. And the description reads like this, As we confess that vain and rash swearing is forbidden Christian men by our Lord Jesus Christ and James his apostle, so we judge that the Christian religion doth not prohibit, but that a man may swear when the magistrate requireth in a cause of faith and charity, so it be done according to the prophet's teaching, Injustice, judgment, and truth. Okay, this is my knee-jerk reaction. I said I haven't, I haven't looked at it. Uh, it sounds like a very simple thing that um, we can swear in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can swear an oath in court, but not out of court. I, I, I'm assuming he's talking about Isaiah, justice, judgment, and truth, the, the prophet's teaching. But I'm, I'm stumped. Maybe if I thought about it a little bit longer, I would understand why he brings James, his apostle, in. Okay, so if you look in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a, a line in the Sermon on the Mount that doesn't get talked about very much, but it, Jesus prohibits taking oaths. Okay. Straight up, says, no, mm-hmm. don't do that. James echoes that in the, in the writing of James. It echoes that, don't okay. be taking oaths. Okay, see, don't there be it taking is. Oaths. Yeah. And so... If you just look at it and take it at face value and approach those texts in a literalistic way, then it seems to suggest then that in our current context where we do go to court and we do take oaths, the two are in conflict with one another, right? Okay. So I, I think in many ways this article is meant to give people permission to say, yeah, if you get called in and you need to uh, take the oath and then <laughs> and share in court, that's okay. You could do that. Yeah. 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 I think what Jesus was trying to get at, though, is there should be no need to make someone tell the truth. Right. That to be his follower meant that you live your life and you use your words in such a way that you tell the truth. 
that you're honest. Good. There's no reason that you would have to do that. And to suggest that you have to force people to do that is, well, it's it's certainly not the spirit that Christ is going for. Let's just say it that way. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus was not interested in folks just making up the truth or telling the story that they want to hear or flat flat out lying. Um, just mm-hmm. just to kind of lay it out there like that. So okay, Christ and James, his apostle. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's not his. That's not his brother. No, I think it's referring to the book of James. The book of James, which the writing of James, and I think that is tradition says that's Jesus' brother James. Okay, because yeah. that's interesting. Because we, again, we talk about development. I love to see James there because it seems like. Um, I may be going out on a limb here too, but uh, go for it. Yeah, yeah, it seems like James had a higher place in the church that eventually shifted to Peter. Uh, Well, it seems like James was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Yeah, so he was a leader within Jewish Christianity early on. Yeah, and and Peter obviously is kind of goes outside the church because he ends up in Rome. Uh Paul same way, he ends up going all over right. uh, the Middle Eastern world, even into Europe. And so uh, I think James gets forgotten <laughs> because Christianity really takes off outside of... It, it st- starts in Jerusalem. It's, it's, yeah, it, it takes off in Rome and then on to, into Europe. And so, um, yeah, James gets forgotten. And unfortunately, James is one of... It is one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. It's so practical. It's, it's, the, it's the one that is definitely an example of what we would call wisdom literature in the new testament because it's just about practical living james is just this is what you do this is how you live this is what it means to to live out a wise a wise life or a life of wisdom and so uh, james doesn't get into the theology like paul does james doesn't get into eschatology which is like the end of the world like some of the authors other authors of the new testament does he doesn't get into that at all he's just like this is how you live a faithful life and so if you're interested in a picture of what that looks like in the first century context, James is your guy. And so it, it's not a, sur- a surprise to me that, that James would pick up on the oath business because that's a practical question. Yeah. Okay, so you opened your sermon talking about words and that um, there were words everywhere and um, there are words of life and there are even words of death and and depends on how you use the words, I guess, and then that God created with with speech, and uh, and as you already mentioned, that Jesus said, uh, do not take oaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So. Well, I, I think words have so much power. And I worry about in our culture today, we are in a culture today that is, we're so inundated with words and language that they become almost like meaningless to us. They don't have value to us like they once did. The ancients would like, just think about the way the the Hebrew Bible was preserved. They took such care with every word, everything that they wrote down, everything that they said. This this is a culture that valued the power of words. And in our culture today, that seems foreign to us because, well, it's just something they said, right? It's no big deal. And, well, no, uh, words form and shape our character. And our character really determines our destiny, in my opinion. And when I'm, I'm not talking about life after death when I use the word destiny. It just, it, 
our words, they shape our hearts, and our hearts shape our desires, and our desires shape our actions, and our actions are, are like, they reflect our character. Our character is like the type of person that we, de- we become. And so just to not take words seriously, so dangerous, <laughs> so dangerous. And so I started with that in my sermon, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you asked the question, how can words speak new life? And your answer was by making God's love real. They, they connect to God's original creative word. God spoke the world into existence. God's create, and I'm, and I'm talking about like voice here. I'm, God's creative word that spoke the world into existence. Words that have power are words that are working along with God's creative words. Words that are destructive are words that go against God's creative word and intent for this world. So definitely, yeah. And so you said that you were going to share five big words for you, words that came out of these 25 articles and and your treatment of it, and those words are Christ, sin, freedom, faith, and hope. Mm. So let's start with Christ. Good place to start. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's the foundation of everything we've been talking about in the Articles of Religion. Um, It's the mantra and the ritual at Methodist Temple, every Sunday we say, I see Christ in you. And, and that's a bold statement. I, I readily admit it. That seems unique. I readily admit it. But what are we saying when we say Christ? Well, the term itself is that. It's a term. It, it's not necessarily Jesus' last name. It's a title. And uh, the, the word goes back to, the word Christ goes back to a Greek word, Christos, Christos goes back to the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah basically means anointed one. And so when I'm saying, when we're saying, I see Christ in you, what we're saying is the world has been anointed with God's presence and works in a Christ-like way. And so really what we're getting at is a, what we would describe as a universal truth, that this is Christ is pointing to a truth that is, that is true everywhere and always. It, it transcends religions and our differences and it seems to suggest that our lives are designed for love. And you have to almost, every time you mention the word love, you have to define love. I mean, it, today's Valentine's Day, and yeah. so it's an example of how we think of love in romantic terms. But a Christ, Christian love is about willing the good of another. Christian love is about desiring the flourishing for others. Christian love is love exemplified in the cross. We lay our lives down for the good of others. And so when we start with Christ, what we're saying is this world is an expression of God's outpouring of love, and thus our lives work best when they're manifesting an outpouring of love. Yeah. Christ. All right. And the next word, uh, sin. Yeah, well, that's a little less popular than Christ, (laughs) but it's just as real. Um, I define sin as living our lives as if God were somewhere else. And so that... That might sound new to our listeners when a person defines sin that way, but it does fit within the classic understanding of the term and and how it's typically been used in the tradition of the church. Way before sin is ever a conscious choice or action, it's a state of being. And so I define sin as we live our lives as if God were somewhere else. And then once that happens, we have permission to become the authors of our own stories. And herein lies the big problem with our culture today. We have decided that God is somewhere else. 
we've adopted a, what I would describe as a materialistic worldview. What's most real about, real about the world is matter, um, the physical. And uh, I wouldn't say science is bad, but there is a form of science that is bad in the sense that it's like scientism, that unless it could be proved scientifically, then we just say it's like meaningless gobbledygook. It, it's, it, it can't be real. And if anything, science teaches us we don't have all the answers, right? That we have something left to learn. But I feel like, and Randy, I want you to kind of jump in here a little bit too. I feel like this materialistic worldview is quite pervasive in our world today. That um, that what's most real is matter, mm-hmm. materialism. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think that matter. Um, is important. I mean, because of the incarnation, God in Christ says that matter is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have bodies which are made up of matter, but we're not just bodies. Right. Uh, uh, we are spirit and body, and it, not dualistically. But we talk about soul, but the but the and then we think about soul as being separate from our body. But that's not the way. That's not the way the Hebrews thought about it. The soul was your entire being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's what it's what you do with, with that matter. And it's forgetting that there is that other side of it, which is, I, I'm hesitating to, to keep them separate because they're not separate. No, no, they're, 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 not, yeah. they're not separate. But we deny that aspect of our lives that we cannot see. Yeah. And then uh, we overemphasize the, the material. And we misuse it. it well, I mean, if you stop and think about it, like if if material is the only thing that's real, if all we are is a collection of matter, mm-hmm. you're a collection of atoms, I'm a collection of atoms, and we're just lucky to be alive. Like we've evolved to this point as human beings. And basically we're just surf- sophisticated, like survival people or something. Right. Like, you know, we get like we're, yeah. ba- we're basically sof- sophisticated in the sense that we can we can kind of think ahead and, and we've evolved in this way. Um, that's not altogether a very positive worldview though. And, and I, mm-hmm. this is hard for me to explain, but I'm going to, I'm going to go there because I feel like it's at the heart of our issue today. Mm-hmm. If God is somewhere else or even worse, God's not even real, then I come from nothing. I'm going back to nothing. And the best as I can hope for is I might as well just be grateful that I'm here. That's not an optimistic or hopeful way to think about my life or this world. At the same time, meaning goes away. I become the author of my own meaning. I become the author of my own story. And and I feel like in our Western culture today, we have a meaning crisis, a crisis of meaning. How does we long to figure out why am I here? How does my life fit? What God is here? Um, we long to find meaning, and and sin is wrapped up into all of this. Like, it's living our lives as if God were somewhere else. It's dismissing the sacred dimension of our lives. It's to take our lives for granted in such a way that we don't see this the sacred value that they have. And it's all of that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to get at when I'm talking about sin and the materialistic. I mm-hmm. and uh, it's a, the classic definition of what I'm talking about in the Bible is idolatry. Right. And the classic definition of idolatry is we mistake the finite for the infinite. Uh-huh. 
And of course, in the ancients, the ancient worldviews, they they built idols and worshipped material gods. But our gods a little bit different nowadays. It's just our gods just materialism. It's not it's not like we have a golden calf. It, it's something else. But nonetheless, we've mistaken the finite for the infinite. We we think that this is all there is. And yeah. and once that happens, what the Bible really seems to suggest is we as humanity go we go off the rails. Because we think, well, I'll just make my own story up as I go. Truth doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Who, are you, who, who are we to even say that there is an absolute? Right. And, and yeah. so... And so we cling to what we can see. We cling to our possessions. Yeah. Right? And then that becomes our God. And we find our security. If we can accumulate enough possessions, if we can secure ourselves against the future, what you know, insulate ourselves as much as we can, then we can find some level of peace, but then we know we can't. I mean, what, because once we get there, we're still not, we still haven't found peace. Right. Um, but that's all we have if we're not willing to open ourselves up to something that's unseen. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's, it's, it's what happens when we lose the sacred dimension. And so... And then it goes into the next word, freedom, that I talked about in my sermon. Yeah. Um, our current con- concept of freedom today is rooted and grounded in this materialistic worldview. Um, when we use the word freedom today, we, we basically mean free to do what I want, free to consume what I want. And kind of echoing what you just mentioned, if all there is is the material, then the, the game we're playing is is how do I get the most material things? And and that can come in the, a couple different forms. It can come... And just economic, I'm trying to get as much money as I can. It can also come in terms of knowledge, too. I'm, I'm trying to consume all the knowledge I can. Um, it can also come in terms of a freedom of lifestyle choice. I'm free to determine the story that I want for my life. And, and this is a point, at that last one I just mentioned, that I struggle with. Because for me, Randy, I think it's important that people be free to be themselves. I really do. I, I, I think it's important we give people the freedom to be themselves, but I also think there's a limit. There's a limit to it. And I know that might seem obvious, but we can't just let people just do whatever. And and I think this is one of the struggles we're having as a culture. We want people to be free to be themselves, but we want to put limits on that. And so, I, I don't know. Freedom, when it's so free that you just do whatever you want, in the end, will fringe on the freedoms of others, right? It'll hurt others, and that's the issue. Um, but again, uh, freedom in our culture today is individual freedom all the way down. And when that's taken to the extreme, that ends up becoming a world that just cannot get along with itself. And certainly we see that mirrored in our political life today. We see in our political world today two very distinct parties based upon two very distinct understandings of things, the one thing they hold in common is they believe the other one is out to get them. And in some level, that's probably true. But they're at odds with one another. We're at an impasse. Our world's not working. And that's individual freedom, um, basically cultured into our groups. So that's not spiritual freedom, though. What spiritual freedom really is, is aligning ourselves with the deeper truth, the spiritual truth of our lives. And it's a, it's a freedom based on, next word, faith. And we kind of talked about faith already, but uh, faith basically is I trust in the non-material aspect of my reality. Um, faith says I believe that I don't. We're not just coming from material and going back to the material that we ultimately come from God, and then that our Creator 
not only spoke us into being, but spoke us to be a certain way in this world. And, and faith is trusting in that and giving our lives to that. And, of course, uh, that spiritual dimension is incarnated in the person of Jesus. Uh, to use a, just a really simple way to explain all this, Christ is the universal. It points to the spiritual that's there everywhere and always. But Jesus is the specific. Let me say that again. Christ is the universal. It points to spiritual dimension that's everywhere and always. But Jesus is the specific and that he's the embodiment of what the spiritual looks like. He, he came and lived and died and rose again so that we might have a spiritual worldview. And that's such a different way of looking at the world than the materialistic. Um, essentially, what the spiritual worldview leaves us with is this notion that we are connected by the presence of God. That Randy, you're not just over there, and I'm not just over here. That Yeah, I mean, we're, still, we're, we're two individuals, but we're connected by a spiritual dimension. And so what happens to you is important to me. What happens to me is important to you affects one another. There's this mutuality that comes from a spiritual worldview. And, uh, I mean, it's obvious, I think, in some ways we've lost this as a species. Look at what we've done to the environment. Look at it. Mm -hmm. Look at how we treat people. Look at it. If we had a truly spiritual worldview, we would see people in this world around us much differently. It's the mystical body of Christ. We, we have to see each other as connected to each other. Are we individuals? Yes. I mean, especially in this country, it, we come back to a culture clash again, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is the way we're raised. You know, you know, we're Americans. You know, we're individuals, and we we don't need any help. And it's hard for us to you know to be dependent on another person. But if we are followers of Christ. You know, we're part of that mystical body of his, connected to everyone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's the old Martin Luther King quote, we're either going to learn to live together as brothers but perish as fools, mm -hmm. was his quote. And, and there's this mutuality um, to our world. And, and I'm not saying this is all rainbows and unicorns either, like, you know, I could just hear the voice, someone listen, <laughs> voice in someone's head that is listening to this podcast right now, and they're thinking, that just sounds crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I get it. I really get it where you're coming from. Yeah. But just stop and think about your own experience again. Like, deep down, you already know this is true, that when we are working for the good of our neighbor, we love our neighbor as ourselves, as Jesus would talk about, and also the other great religions of the world talk about as well. As we love our neighbors as ourselves, there's something happening in that movement and that willingness to do that, that our lives begin to flourish. And when they don't, when we don't, we begin to perish. And, and I think in many ways as a world, we're at a crossroads. Which way are we going to go? We're going to learn to live in mutuality together. We're going to continue to go on this path where we think that life is just all about an accumulation of stuff, telling the stories that making up our stories as we go and seeing our lives in disconnected ways, are we going to adopt a, a worldview based upon the spiritual that says we're in this together, what happens to you is important, just as what happens to me is important, and my life is a part of a, a greater life, and it's sacred. It, it's just a question that's before us that, that the gospel invites us to ask. So. Okay, in about the last five minutes that we have, let's move on to hope, the fifth of the five, Christ, sin, freedom, faith. Let's talk about hope, and then wrap this up with a, a little bit of talk about uh, Ash Wednesday and, and Lent. Okay. Um, 
So hope is not the same as optimism, and hope in my mind is not the same as wishful thinking. Uh, optimism says, I have a feeling it's going to work out. Uh, wishful thinking says, boy, I wish I just get what I want out of this. That's how hope is often interpreted, but that's not spiritual hope. Spiritual hope basically says, when all the world's burning around me, I still know who I am because I found that spiritual core in me, and I'm going to live according to these deeper values. Uh, spiritual hope says, my life can still make a difference, period. And the, and the people who have that type of hope, they act on it, essentially. They're not going to sit back and just hope it happens, wish it happens. They're going to do something about it, and they, and they believe that they can have an impact. Uh, I think Jesus, in many ways, embodies this hope. You know, he didn't just hang out in Nazareth his whole life. He didn't just go by the Sea of Galilee and hang out with his buddies. No, he, he went out, he ministered to people, he went to Jerusalem, he overturned the tables. He had the hope that his life could make a difference. Now, he didn't necessarily, you know, there wasn't this sense it was just all going to be easy going the whole time for him, and, but he kept going anywhere. That, that's hope. And, and I think that's the kind of hope the church is called to. All right. Very, very good. In the last couple of minutes that we have, um, as we've already indicated, we are recording on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is the first day of the season of Lent. Lent is 40 days minus Sundays, going all the way up to the Saturday before Easter. And it is a, it is a season. It is a season of um, repentance. It's a season of preparation. It's a season of recognizing um, our sins. And let me just uh, make a really quick kind of summary of, of what I talked about today in the Ash Wednesday message, and then we'll let you comment on that as, and give you the, the kind of the last word on that. But what I said today was that, that Ash Wednesday is a public demonstration, and then the very next day, Thursday, that becomes Lent where it becomes private. It goes inside then. And the reason why I brought that up was my opening question during my message today was, have you ever wondered why we put these ashes on our foreheads and then we go out as a group and we say, look at us, we are, we are the Christians and we're marked with these ashes when, when Jesus in the lesson for today seems to be saying, don't do that kind of a thing. And so I went through um, the um, the history of where we get the where the ashes came from, and they're everywhere uh, in in the Old Testament, and then they're there then in in the New Testament. And part of the um, confession was public um, for, for the Jewish people, and so uh, and so Ash Wednesday is public, and it's right that we as a congregation and and we as as Christians say, hey, this is important. This is an important season, and I am a Christian, um, but then. But then it goes inside, and I said that Lent really is an inside job. And Jesus, in this in this text from uh, the Sermon on the Mount in the sixth chapter of Matthew, gives us three spiritual practices. In fact, he didn't give them to us. These are spiritual practices that have been there since the beginning. Prayer, uh, fasting, and giving alms, which is giving to the poor. What he said was, when you do these things, don't do them to show off. Go inside yourself and inside your prayer closet and do those things in private. Don't show somebody how much you're giving to the poor. Don't show somebody how well you can pray. Um, don't show everybody how 
sick you get when you fast, do that secretly. And that's the inner work. That's the inner heart work. And one of the things I really loved about it as I studied this this time was there's all this talk of um, people who are in that repentive mode that they are, you know, they have the ashes and and then they, they're wearing these rough clothes and they're actually ripping their clothes. And so, but that's a symbol for ripping the heart open and then going inside and doing that work. And then we referred to Psalm, Psalm 51. Was it Psalm 51? I think it was. Mm-hmm. That's the Psalm that traditionally gets attributed to David. This is his repentance after the sin uh, with Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband. And, and one of the lines is, create in me a clean heart. Created me a clean heart, so it's not so it's not so much about uh, overemphasizing the sin, but realizing that God is there to receive us and forgive us, and yeah. when we turn back to God, and He and God's the one that creates that clean heart inside of us that we that we then can operate out of that. Right. Well, one of the prayers we prayed in our service today. There's this line where it says, "Free us for joyful obedience." Yeah. And so what's that mean? Well, it's this idea that what begins as a conscious choice and it's difficult to do over a period of time by God's grace, it's, it's almost natural for us to do. Mm-hmm. And that's when we're freed for joyful obedience. You know, at first when I started to become a Christian, it was hard to, <laughs> to live out some of these things. I didn't really want to do them, but I consciously chose to do them. But over a period of time, I... I saw the merit in doing them, but then it just kind of, and more and more becomes more of a natural thing for us to do. We're, we're freed for a joyful obedience at that point. Now, we're never quite there in terms of perfection, you know, absolute perfection, but it's this idea, though, that as we live the Christian life, it's the natural life for us to live. And as we experience transformation, we're set free to obey. And And you've seen people, I've seen people where they just, it just seems so effortless for them to, to live out a, a holy life, and a faithful life, as, as Jesus was defined, Jesus defined it. And you find Jesus saying things that point in the direction I'm talking about, because the one big statement in the Sermon on the Mount that comes the chapter before our passage for today, Jesus says to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you're missing the mark. What's he talking about? He's saying, I don't want people to just give me lip service. I want a transformation of one's heart, one's very being, where their desire is to do this. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be this burden for them, but it's like, yeah, I, not only am I doing these things, I want to do these things now because over a period of time I've undergone transformation. And But that's hard to do, and that's why Lent is not an easy time for us to, to truly take seriously. Preview your series. This will be the last thing today. So you're going to start a new series through the through the Lenten season. Yeah. So the uh, Lenten series we're going to use uh, for the next five weeks is called Atonement or Atonement. Um, what Atonement is is it's about the process of removing those barriers between us and God. It's about growing in our joyful obedience that I just talked about. And so what we're going to do is take a look at different understandings of the cross and what it can teach us about how we could be free free to serve God and follow God today. Um, my belief is that the cross really contains about everything you need to know in terms of what it means to live a faithful life. And so we're going to take a look at the different angles and the way the cross has been interpreted and applied.
Okay, that's very good. That's the first Sunday in Lent. That's this Sunday. Hey, come join us here at Methodist Temple. Uh, worship with us virtually. Maybe you already have a church home. That's that's great. Continue to listen to the podcast. We appreciate it. If you ever have a question you'd like for us to tackle, just let us know. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.